Stephen Covey made a popular, made, made a saying popular, which said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. This was a, repeat, a repeated phrase in my preaching classes in seminary. It was repeated, as you might guess, to set in the minds of these young aspiring ministers to focus on the Word of God, to know the text, to read the text, to study the whole counsel of God concerning that particular text. But what can often happen in a preacher's life or a preacher's study is that they become fascinated, fascinated with a single verse, fascinated with what they might think of when they read one verse and think of another verse. Or an idea found in the passage that leads them down a path and they no longer make the main thing the main thing. They are no longer trying to convey what the author thinks needs to be conveyed in the text of Scripture. And however, just as John did in the book of Revelation... We find here in his gospel, he made Jesus the main thing. Jesus is the main thing of all of the scriptures. Now, there are some critics, some people who doubt this biblical hermeneutic. They say that type of hermeneutic, that way of interpreting the Bible, is like The comic strip, Where's Waldo? If you aren't familiar with Where's Waldo, it's actually a British children's book. It's a series, and it was actually originally named Where's Wally? Sorry, Wilsons. The book consists of a series of detailed double pages where these all these illustrious illustrations, and the goal of the book is on these pages, find Waldo. And what the critics of this interpretation of the Bible say is that when we try to find Jesus in every passage, what we're actually doing is importing Waldo into the text. This is what I mean. When you read the Old Testament, Although the Old Testament never uses the name of Jesus, if we use this hermeneutic in a bad way, how we have to understand the text is this text is actually talking about Jesus. And here's where I agree with these critics. We can't just take Jesus wherever we want and put him in the Old Testament. Not one author of the Old Testament ever mentions the name of Jesus. We are doing a disservice to the Old Testament when we just put Jesus' name in wherever we want. But this is what I think is important. And this is what I think helps us understand and keep the main thing the main thing. Because what the authors of the Old Testament are doing and what we should see is that in some way, every Old Testament passage prepares us for Jesus. Just because they don't use his name, just because they don't talk 
necessarily about what he will do. Everything in the Old Testament prepares us for Jesus. We don't have to see his name on the page. But because every passage of Scripture is about Jesus, that means we can read Genesis 1 and 2 and understand how it prepares us for Jesus. We can also read Revelation 21 and 22 and see how the Bible explains who Jesus was. And as Richard Phillips explains, we can prove this method of interpretation. For in John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders on the Sabbath. And when he's teaching them about his works and his witness to the Father, this is what he says. You know not your scriptures, because you think in them you find eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus, speaking about the Old Testament, specifically the law and the Sabbath, here in verse 46 after that says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. This interpretation of the Bible is the same thing we see at the end of Luke's gospel, where he opens the eyes of his disciples on the Emmaus Rose, and he interprets how all of the Old Testament was about and fulfilled in him. Now you might be asking yourself, why is this important for us today? In our passage, in John 19, four times in these 16 verses, we read the words, this was to fulfill the scriptures. In verse 24, 28, 36, and 37, John wants us to see the main thing of all of the scriptures. His name is Jesus. Everything that came before, everything that comes after is all about Jesus. I can hear in my mind my professors straining on their voices. Keep the main thing the main thing. In John chapter 19, that will not be hard for us to do because it's all about Jesus. This morning... All I want you to do is to look at Jesus. To look at his veiled glory upon the cross, bearing our judgment for our sin. It was at the cross that he went to show his great love for us. To reveal God's great grace for us that we might live. And as I want to, and I'm not going to, I, I, I read a commentary every week um, through, as I've been going through John, and one of the commentators preached seven sermons from this one passage that we're going to cover this morning. Now, I'm not going to condense that into one sermon and make us be here all day, but I wish I could get touch on everything in this passage. But what I want us to focus on this morning is these fulfillment passages where we see 
Jesus as the main thing of all of the scriptures. As I said last week, we are on Good Friday. Jesus has been tried and Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus, who was innocent, is suffering, gasping for air, and he's about to die upon the cross. And he's suffering because of his great love for us. He's suffering because the Father sent him to complete a work for us. He's suffering because Scripture is very clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is our death. Yet if you come to Jesus, if by faith, you look to Jesus, you receive life. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus this morning. Let us make him the main thing. And what I want us to see this morning is this biblical expectation of who Jesus really is. And then we'll very briefly look at the biblical explanation of what he has done. But let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning in need. We need the words of Jesus to set us free. We need the words of Jesus to heal us this morning. We need Jesus this morning. Father, there is nothing that I can say this morning that will change anybody's mind, anybody's heart. But we believe that you are a God that works, a God that moves, a God that is alive. We ask for you to work in us this morning. Lord, bring this congregation in perfect harmony together. May we seek to love each other, to bear one another's burdens, to seek the best for each other, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to stand, stand side by side and sing for one another even to confess to one another. Lord, we pray for those who are hurting. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for your hand of healing to come upon them, to work in them, to relieve pain, to take away sickness, To renew. Lord, we pray for this community. Father, bless us that we might be a blessing. Lord, we pray for our country. 
We pray for our president and our vice president. We pray for all of our representatives and senators, the justices. Father, you constantly tell us in your word, without you we have no hope. Lord, may these men and women be given supernatural wisdom. Reveal yourself to them. We pray for your world. We pray for those who are suffering down in Florida. Lord, we are meeting this morning with electricity and air conditioning. Many churches in Florida are not doing that this morning. May the restoration of your creation begin this morning through the power of your spirit. We ask this in the name of Christ. And we pray as he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In John's gospel, all of us should be accustomed to, by this point, his consistent portrayal of divine irony. I think I looked it up in the past three sermons. We've talked about the divine irony found in John's gospel. We've seen the ironic words of the high priest standing and condemning God's great high priest. We've seen the governor and ruler of the area standing as a judge and a king over the king of kings and the judge of the world. We've seen a guilty man declared innocent for one who is truly innocent and found as not guilty. This morning, John's irony has not run out And here in verses 16 through 24, we see multiple things happen. Eyewitness claims to the consistent rejection of Jesus as the Messiah of God, the one Israel had been told to wait. On the cross was written, inscribed in different languages for all to read the king of the Jews. Yet we find something even more ironic, that these Roman soldiers who have forced Jesus to carry his cross to his own crucifixion, this cross, as D.A. Carson writes, refers to, to the cross beam, the horizontal bar. The condemned criminal would bear it on their shoulders and carry it to the place of execution where the upright beam, the gibbet, was already fastened to the ground. Jesus has been flogged twice. He's been spit on, slapped, mocked, and now he's carrying his cross. And as we see in the other gospel writers, what they tell us is that Jesus actually collapsed, no longer be able to carry the heaviness of that cross beam. 
and someone else had to carry it for him. Yet when they reached the place of the skull, Jesus is, faced, is forced to lie down on this crossbeam, and then they hoist him up, either by tying him to the cross or nailing him to the cross. And then at his feet, they either tie him or would nail him in an upright position. And they sometimes would attach a little wood seat right by his feet. This would allow for someone who's hanging on the cross the ability to push upon it so that they could have a breath. So they not, would not become asphyxiated. Whoa, sorry. So that he would not suffocate and become asphyxiated. And you might think of this little seat by his feet, by his feet, oh, that's really gracious of the Roman soldiers. It actually wasn't. Because if you were nailed to the cross without this seat, you would just die. But because they put this at his feet, what those who were crucified would do, they would push themselves up to catch another breath to make the agony last longer. Because if you were hanging on the cross, you could not just let yourself die. You would do everything you could to stay alive, and it made the process even longer. They did it to prolong his life, to increase his agony, to increase the time upon the cross. This is divine irony. Jesus is on the cross being crucified, dying for others, made to suffer an agonizing death, prolonged, and he was innocent. And here we have these soldiers. These soldiers who only cared about themselves. Jesus is dying on the cross for the sins of the world, and these soldiers steal everything that he has while he's suffering. Selfishly, selfishly, they strip him naked. You know, almost every depiction that we have of Jesus on the cross, he's wearing a loincloth. They took everything from him. He was exposed for all the world to see. And they divided it among them so they could try to make some money off of Jesus. Now, of course, when we read this text, it says that they divided the garments among them, and for my clothes they cast cast lots to fulfill the scriptures. We are not to understand this as though the Roman soldiers knew of this text and therefore performed these heinous acts. But this psalm is from Psalm 22, what, what we read in our call to worship. And you, what, what you might not know about this psalm is that psalm is a lament of David, a lament written of his suffering in the midst of his enemies, as they mocked him 
and he faced no, or he received no sympathy from them. And this is what John wants us to see. This is why John prompts his readers to remember this Old Testament passage. Do you see how David, what happened to David, and how David spoke of his enemies? And yet while David was being ridiculed, stripped naked and forsaken, he knew that God was near him. And now we have God's son, David's son, David's Lord, using these same words. And yet he says nothing of his enemies. He bears the curse of his enemies. Because Jesus does nothing for himself. Jesus only acts for the good of others. And then we read in verses 25 through 27, this depiction, this eyewitness account of these people that are standing at the cross. We see his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother, he said, woman, behold your son. And when he saw the disciple that he loved, he said, behold your mother. Jesus was raised on the cross. And all he was doing was thinking about the good of others. Mothers, I don't have to say in detail what this might be like. Consider Mary, a teen mom, found with child out of wedlock, visited by the angel of the Lord and told that she will be a servant of the living God. Simeon had promised her that this child would be that after, to this child would be appointed the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is posed, and a sword would pierce her own heart. The life of her child was anything other than normal. And now she's standing at the cross, witnessing him stripped naked, suffering as an innocent man, being crucified. And yet all that Jesus cares for is her well-being. In that dreadful moment, he's more worried about who will care for his mother when he's gone than himself. It's at this point that you find out who people really are. When they face trials, when they face adversity, when they face shame, On his quote-unquote deathbed, Jesus is consumed with the love of others. And what John wants us to see is that this is the same type of love that Christ has for us. 
There's nothing in this passage that props up Mary to any specific status. If anything, it puts her under the care of his disciple, John. Jesus had his eyes fixed upon the very thing that he had come to do. To bear the sins of the world. To care for others. Now there's many, much discussion about what could be interpreted, both from the clothes being distributed and from Mary being named here at the cross. But it's very interesting. The only other time in John's gospel we see Jesus' clothes not on him is where? This is a quiz. When he's washing the feet of the disciples. When he's washing the feet of his disciples, he takes off his clothes to make them clean. And here at the cross, his clothes are stripped from him. And yet, as he's told them in the upper room, I am going to make you This is what Christ has done for you. On that cross, he has made his people clean. And this is what John tells us. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Again, this is from another psalm. A psalm of lament. It's Psalm 69. And there we hear David again speaking a situation of a faithful Israelite who is suffering. And the psalm goes on to call down a curse upon his enemies. He asks God, please destroy my enemies. For they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine. And yet what we see here is a better David. A better David in his lament, asking his enemies for a drink upon the cross, but yet he does not ask for judgment upon his enemies, because it is for his enemies he is nailed to that cursed tree. It is upon that cross that he drinks the sour wine as the cup of judgment. For Paul tells us, it was while we were enemies. While we were enemies, that is when Christ reconciled us to God the Father. Through the death of the Son. It is through his death we receive life. Because it was at that point that Jesus pronounced, It is 
finished. Yesterday, I volunteered at the Memphis Ironman. Those people are crazy. I have a video on my phone. I, I took a recording. It was right before all the athletes jumped into the lake or pond, whatever you want to call it, at Shelby Farms. And it was a line that snaked all the way around. And no lie, there must have been a thousand of them. It was 50 degrees. They're all standing barefooted, getting ready to jump in the water and swim for a mile and a half. Then they would transition and they would all get on their bikes and they would all run or ride their bikes 54 miles. I'm sure many of you, they might have gotten in your way yesterday as they came out into Fayette County. They rode their bikes in a big circle, a big loop, then returned to Shelby Farms, and then they ran a half marathon. But what every Ironman loves is that one post-up picture. After they've suffered for anywhere from four hours to 12 hours, they cross that finish line with their hands held high in the sky because they had completed a huge accomplishment. When Jesus says, it is finished, We have nothing to put our hands in the air in for. For when he says it is finished, it is because of his great work. For his great love for us. When he says it is finished, it is he that is glorifying the Father and is accomplishing the work that he had given him to do. When he says it is finished, it was for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him might have eternal life. When he says it is finished, Christ is pronouncing, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down for the sake of my sheep. When he says it is finished, we stand up for that picture. Not because of anything we have done, but for what Christ has suffered and bore on the cross. Because it was on that cross that he bore our sins. It was at that cross that Christ accomplished everything that we need accomplished for our redemption. Yet John says one more time, for these things took place that scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. At the same time, we could be reading Isaiah 53, or Psalm 34, or Exodus 12 that we read this morning. 
Because as John has presented from the very beginning of his gospel, Jesus is this lamb of God. And when they came to break his legs, he was already dead so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that he might be a perfect, unblemished lamb. That his blood might be smeared, poured upon us, that we might be passed over from God's judgment. He was the one that was despised and rejected by man. Acquainted with guilt and grief. It was upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. It was upon his wounds that we are healed. It was Jesus that was placed between two criminals. Two thieves, enemies of God. It was there that Jesus bore the sins of the world. And when he died, the sun veiled its face, its face, the earth quaked, and the mountains were rent asunder. All men were stricken with awe. These things showed that Christ on the cross was God himself and that all creation was his slave and was bearing witness by its fear to the presence of their master. It is at the cross that Jesus inaugurates the new covenant in his blood. He shed his blood for sinners like you and me. As Paul writes, For our sake, he, God, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. It was on that cross that Christ redeemed us by being the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. It is at that cross that Paul tells the church in Corinth that Christ died for our sins and this is of first importance because this is what all the scriptures prepared us for. It was at the cross of Christ that we see God's amazing grace for us because on our behalf, Our Savior said, it is finished. And our sins were forgiven. This is the main thing. If we get this wrong, we get everything wrong about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about us looking to Jesus. so that we might believe and live. Let us pray.